You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Crippled Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on a brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and I am your disabled Dick Smith. Thank you for joining me, and let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together today. So get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get started. On the episode today, I sit down with one of my brand new friends, Travis Lau, and I fell in love with him just from talking with him. We have such an important conversation about queerness, disability, scoliosis, sexuality. Um, We talk about how, what it's like to be Asian and queer and disabled in an Asian household and how all those things interplay, interplayed for him. We talk about some of his poetry. It was a really fun chat and I love Travis C. Lau. and you will love him too after hearing this. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore because the interview is fantastic and you'll love it. Here it is right now, my interview with Travis Lau, right now on Disability After Dark. Travis Lau, hello. Hello there. I am so happy to have you on the show because you just informed me three seconds ago that this is your very first podcast ever. So... Welcome. Yes, I'm extremely excited. I have been an avid listener of podcasts and your podcast in particular too, uh, but I've never been on the sort of recording side of things. So this is kind of exciting. Wow, it feel, I feel I again feel so honored, and it, it's not super technical. It's me and Skype and some words. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Um. So I don't know how you and I ended up following each other. I think I think the the joy of disability Twitter is we just kind of all get to know each other that way. So I think that's how I found out about you. I think so. Um, That sounds right. Which is, yeah, which is super awesome. And we just started following each other, which is great. So why don't you introduce yourself to everyone and let us know who you are, what you do, maybe a little bit about your disability too. Sure. Um, So my name is Travis Lau. Uh, I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and I'm actually a literature scholar. I study 
uh, 18th and 19th century British literature, but at the same time, I also do a lot of work with the history of medicine and disability studies, and that's actually my entry point into thinking about disability. Um, I've said in, I think in other places that disability was one of the sort of last identities I really came into because I spent a lot of time thinking about my race and my queerness, uh, but disability was something that I didn't really have vocabulary for until graduate school when I started to meet folks in the field and there started to be a disability presence at the University of Pennsylvania where I did my PhD. Um, but I had never really thought about myself as disabled. In fact, I, I think growing up in a Chinese household, you learn to sort of shed that um, sense of connection to weakness. And that's something that is really bound up with issues of masculinity and about gender. Uh, but I happen to have um, what would be described as moderate scoliosis. So I have two uh, curves in my spine on the upper right and the upper left of my back. And it causes um, various forms of chronic pain. But also for me, um, I get really, really foggy almost all the time. So it's hard sometimes to string sentences together or to think clearly. Um, and oftentimes it can affect my breathing uh, and other sort of processes day to day. Uh, sometimes I'll find myself uh, sort of in mild uh, sort of states of anxiety and depression. And I think those things are all sort of linked together. Fun. I was I was cool with everything up until fogginess. And then when you said breathing and like, like day to day processes, I was like, great, awesome. It isn't fun when your body tries to betray you. It's so fun. Uh Exactly, and uh, does so with such skill that some days I'm like, I'm just not going to do shit today. I'm just going to just sort of camp out, let my body do its thing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to just stop, and that I think, get, and also, you know, I'm curious about that because you grew up in an in a in an Asian household, and because you mm -hmm. were just talking about how like you couldn't be you couldn't be perceived as weak. How does it feel to have to like stop to just stop? It's it's really interesting because I've been I've been thinking a lot about how I was raised and the sort of immigrant mentality of excelling and trying to make the best of, uh, you know, what you can, what you can do and what you have. And it's, it's an ambition and it's been something that characterizes both of my parents who were, you know, raised with this mentality of like, you really have to be constantly working and constantly succeeding. And, you know, I think it, it's detrimental in two ways. One, for Asian Americans, it becomes a way of, shoring up that myth that, oh, well, Asians are only successful, are only valuable if they're successful. That's the model minority myth. And then the second part is it really doesn't do justice to people with disabilities. In fact, I think many members of my household grapple with what we might think of as disability, but they've never been allowed to talk about it. They've never really allowed themselves to explore that aspect of their identity. And in many ways, they've suffered as a result. I And I think having to stop, quite literally, because my body refuses to live up to those expectations, it's it's been really, really powerful for me to realize how much of my life I've dedicated to living up to expectations that are ableist and ones that are actually not sustainable for me. That's, and I think anybody listening with a disability is like, yep, how many times mm -hmm. do we have, but to add on the like cultural piece to it, to, to, to see that disability is not talked about in, in, in culture the way you understand it is just so it's just so sad like I wish that I wish that, because so much and I, you know thinking about it this way too so much of disability tech is produced in Asian countries and yet we don't that's right 
talk about disability in Asian culture. Like, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a missed opportunity. And I think things are changing, especially as um, there have been more activists and more people actually in the U.S. and in the U.K. starting to circulate these conversations, especially Asian Americans with disabilities talking about it. Um, I think there's hope for it, but it's really built into the way the culture thinks of, say, uh, a condition like depression, which is almost always adjacent to things like madness or craziness. And then it's always a folded into a morality argument. And that's always been something that's unsettled me about the fact that mental illness must necessarily mean something about your inner or moral self. And your character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so many of us with disabilities that are that are physical manifest that through depression. So I can like right. I can imagine with you and your your scoliosis and I have it too, so hey, welcome to the club. Yeah. Um, so that I can imagine like that being depressed about that you can't so like if you're having a back day and you're with your family mm-hmm. like you can't show pain or weakness during those moments because then your morality is put into question mm-hmm. or your inability to cope or your ability to quote unquote soldier through or overcome i mean these are things that as disability activists have long been talking about but i i, I realize now especially as i'm starting to better understand myself as a disabled person um how much that affects my day-to-day life in even the smallest of ways. Yeah. And the, tell me more about that. Tell me, like, a little bit about your... I'm curious about, your, like, your coming out process, not only as queer mm. and maybe a little bit of the polyamory parts, too, but also, like... Um, but also coming out as disabled. Like, what's that process been like for you? It's been... It's been a lot of coming to terms with the fact that I've subjected myself to a lot of strain and um, excessive pressure to be, live, and succeed in certain ways that actually my body cannot sustain. Um, When I started to get to undergrad, I was a workaholic. I think, you know, when I was 18, this young, not fully out gay man in the South. I grew up in the suburb of Atlanta and, you know, around, yeah, conservative, white, well-to-do, Christian, mostly Baptist folks. Um, And I just wanted to get out. All I knew was I was going to get out and I ended up going to uh, undergrad at UCLA. So I was in Los Angeles and it was like, you know, you're in a a gay Mecca and it, it didn't even matter that I had come out. And there was something about that that was so simultaneously amazing, but also terrifying because my queerness was insignificant in a place where so many people are queer. But at at the same time, I think I realized um, how much I was still clinging on to these expectations of having to be successful and capable and valuable based on the work that I did. So I was an extreme workaholic. Um, and you know, I, I did two jobs while taking four, maybe sometimes five classes a quarter. It was the quarter system there, and I worked myself to the ground. And I think my body finally gave out toward the latter part of my undergrad career, where I was in so much pain that I was dragging myself through uh, my work and my my education in ways that just. I really regret now because I'm living the consequences of that exhaustion and that burnout now. Cause you, I mean, and that's tough too. And I, how did, how, 
just hearing that there's so many layers of that I want to unpack because I sure. really, like, there's so many things you said there that would like really spoke to me first you grew up in a, you like grew up in a place where Christian white conservative and you were you know a queer Asian kid mm-hmm. so there's that thing to like what was from your childhood and growing up what was that kind of what was that like for you yeah so I lived a really unusual childhood I guess um, I I was born and raised in Hong Kong but I left when I was about three and I traveled a lot my mom worked in telecommunications she was formerly um, upper management for AT&T and part of her job was to spread AT&T's um, head, uh, not headquarters um, uh, business locations in multiple Asian cities so I moved seven, eight times uh, every six months to a year to a different city. Uh, but I ended up in Atlanta when my mom left AT&T to work for a different company. And Atlanta sort of became an unexpected place for the entire family because I don't think we ever expected to end up in the South. But we did. Um, and I spent most of my childhood there, so second grade all the way through high school. Um, and it was extremely formative for me, uh, realizing that the moment I got there, um, I was bringing different lunches to school that people would mock me for, realizing that I'd be the only Asian kid in a room full of white kids, many of whom have never left the state of Georgia. And I mean, it, I think I've, I've grown enough now not to see that as any sort of marker of their lesserness or reason for me to be re- like a retaliatory about it. But it, I, I think at the time I didn't, I didn't realize how much that was hurtful to me or like going through my neighborhood and meeting a girl down the street who said, I don't play with kids like you. Not really full of, yeah, not really fully understanding what she meant by that. And of course the other other element at the time that I didn't quite understand was that it would also be my queerness, not just my Asian-ness. So, you know, I spent most of my middle and high school career um, trying so hard to pass. Like I I think I definitely spoke with a lower octave. I walked differently. I wanted so badly to pass. And that's the sort of labor that I think about now is just such a waste because it was such, it was totally at my own expense. I was so unhappy and so sort of self-destructive, uh, but only because I felt like I wanted to be like the people I, I was around all the time. Yeah, you wanted to be somewhere else. And so how, I'm just curious in terms of like physicality because of the scoliosis, when you tried to code switch the walking and stuff, did it, didn't that hurt? Oh yeah. I mean, the, you know, the sort of, ridiculous stereotype of, you know, the white masculine jock, the way that they walk, as well as the sort of, I mean, I've never been that kind of person to exude the kind of confidence, almost delusional levels of self-confidence that some of my um, counterparts did in high school. I was very close friends with uh, our high school, I guess you could say quarterback, um, and it was so strange to be close to him because I was everything he wasn't, and I felt like I needed to be, even though I was fully aware, I think, uh, that I could never actually achieve that, but I felt like, okay, if I could just, you know, tweak this behavior or pass this much better, I'd get closer to it, and it was, it was, it felt really desperate, especially now that I'm thinking about it now. It, it's it's hard for me to admit that, but I, th- I felt like I needed it at the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I was in high school, I was in love with pretty much the most popular guy in my grade and mm-hmm. we never ended up like nothing ever came of that but I wanted to, I, I, I both 
simultaneously wanted to be with him and be him. And mm-hmm. so I get that pressure of like, if I can just code switch enough, this person will will see me as like valuable and then I'll fit in. And if this person accepts me, then everybody will. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine like, and I, I can also like, because I've had a, I've had the marker of the wheelchair since I was, since I was young. Did your scoliosis right. develop over time, or was it something you had when you were a kid? So this is something that I've tried, been trying to think through because technically, there were really quote unquote no signs. I remember when I was in elementary school, we did those obligatory and super awkward and uncomfortable like scoliosis checks that you did in PE. They would force all the guys to remove their shirts and they would just go through with the scoliometer to quote unquote track whether or not you had Yeah, it was so weird. Oh what (laughs) Yeah, it was it was super queer too because of course you're like in a room, in a locker room full of mostly half naked men, all like in various degrees of bending over. And it was like I think about it now, it's like one of the queerest things in the world. But it was also just horrible to have to go through that especially when you hear this i mean we we assume it's a doctor or a nurse be like well it looks like your spine's curving this many degrees to the right or the left and i mean at the time surprisingly i didn't seem to have any red flags but by high school it was really obvious that you know if i ever uh, bent down to pick something up my one uh part of my back would be higher than the other and we were like okay that's it's very clear now that I have scoliosis. Um, and I think, you know, because my parents didn't quite want to necessarily pursue that route that might suggest a disability or suggest that something was uh, chronic or long term, that we didn't act on it sooner. I didn't do I didn't get a brace. I didn't do anything that was going to be corrective. I just let it sort of go the way it did. And by college, it was undeniable. So. And I only ask this because I have scoliosis too, and mine was yeah. so pronounced that like I was falling over and couldn't sit up anymore. I looked like a wheelchair using Quasimodo, basically, is what I looked like, kind of almost. Oh my gosh. Um, actually, wait, no. Let me let me rephrase that. I look I look sort of like if you told me to sit up straight, my head would be perpendicular to a door frame. So I couldn't. Oh I literally couldn't sit up, and the doctor was like. Great, if you keep going this way, your spine will get crushed, and you will for sure die, and that's what's going to happen to you. So I was like, all right, surgery it is, that is great. Okay. So I went through, like, scoliosis surgeries in my formative years um, to have it corrected, and I remember being in love with boys during the time my surgery was done and trying to figure out, like, phoning boys high on Demerol, being like, hey, when I go to the hospital, do you, like, want to go out and be friends? And they'd be like, oh, <laughs> I don't see you that way. Sorry. Oh, my God. That is something I never quite pursued until around college is when I started to see a uh, chiropractor who uh, specialized in spinal curvature. And um, the way it was put to me was that, well, um, you can pursue it. It's high. It, it is a curve high enough to be worth surgically intervening into. But the chance of paralysis is reasonably high i think he said something uh to the degree of like 20 to 30 percent and i was like uh i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) and whether or not it is something i want to risk i was terrified by that prospect that's so scary like and so and you're grappling with your queerness at that time too yes exactly that whole thing together oh yeah so you need that you might get surgery but also you could get paralyzed and then how can you come out and like meet somebody and like 
do all those things if your body is doing this to you. Like, I can imagine, well, I, I know firsthand how terrifying that is because I was going yeah. through the same thing when I was 16, so I get that. What did you feel? How did all that stuff play out for you? I think, I mean, it, it's now so clear to me how those things link up, and I, I really appreciate you putting those into dialogue with one another, but I think 18-year-old me was, you know, coming out for the first time, liberated, going to queer spaces. And there was a deeply sort of internalized ableism in that where I wanted to be sure I was desirable, that I would be around men that would equally desire me and that my disability would be something that I could pass as not being there. Like my scoliosis, if you looked at me straight on, you wouldn't be able to tell. However, now I think if you look at, if I'm wearing tighter clothing or I'm bending in a certain way, you can definitely see it. And it's been something that I, I spent a long time being super insecure about. But the very fact that a chiropractor would be like, oh, well, we can just surgically correct it, but there could be paralysis. That was like impossible for me to wrap my head around because that would essentially end my queer life in my mind at the time before it even started. Oh yeah. When the doctor said to me too, we're going to like put a rod in your spine, my, my, second thought as a 16 year old after am I going to die after that I was like cool well will I, will, will I be able to have sex with this rod like what's yeah <laughs> and I never told anybody that until right now but when yeah but oh my that's, God. that's like what I thought was like will I be able to fuck when if I do this and be, the answer is yes and I fuck quite well thank you very much <laughs> but, uh, but but you know it's what you think when you're a kid and so I can imagine like also for you being an Asian American person who was told they couldn't quit like did this did even consulting this doctor feel like it was like you shouldn't that's that's the other element to this which is I I dreaded going because in some ways I was now forced to reconcile with the idea that I have a chronic condition bad enough that surgical intervention was actually plausible and the way I mean my recent book of poems that came out was about this experience and how oddly um, empowering it was, one, that I could uh, do something about what I thought was something I needed to cover up most of my life, but at the same time, how alienating that experience was because he talked about it in such matter-of-fact way. It's like, okay, well, uh, we can adjust your spine uh, as best as we can, but then surgery will correct it nice and easy, and then you're, you, know, you have a recovery of three to six months, and you should be back on your feet. But, you know, there's a chance paralysis, NBD. Oh, God. It's so weird how the doctors are like, three to three to six months, no big deal, like, whatever, you'll figure it out. And we're sitting there like, three to six months is a lifetime? What do you yeah. mean? That presumes so many access things involving resources. Like, who has time to be out for three to six months completely incapacitated and unable to get out of bed? I'm sorry. Like, that's, as a college kid who was in lots of student loan debt, uh, yeah, not happening. Who was in LA wanting to get yes. his, you know wanting to get his rocks off with all the hot LA queers? I wouldn't Amen. want to be down for six months either. Yeah, exactly. So I can't remember. I think I think I saw something about that on Twitter. Did you you went through with it? Yeah, you did, or did you not? I did not. I after that whole incident, I um, I had to just you know I. I continued going to him to have my back adjusted, which really helped with the chronic pain part. But it was one of those things where it was just putting a Band-Aid over it. Uh, and I I couldn't financially or um, sort of time-wise support that decision. 
and I ended up not not pursuing it. And I live with I live with that choice and the pain now. But um, I'm finally in a position now where I have a little bit more income and security that I might uh, go for a second opinion and see what the next sort of options are. I know the surgery has changed over time, so maybe the degree of paralysis and the recovery time is less. But I haven't I haven't spoken to a professional about this in what has probably been over a decade. I support you in whatever way you want to do that because surgery is scary as fuck and mm-hmm. people don't support disabled people in the hospital the way they should. Yeah, so however you, like however you want to do that, I'm behind you because I've been in the exact same spot you're in. Like, They showed me a video of my surgery before I had the surgery and I was terrified. I was like, what oh is God. this? Oh no, oh God. <laughs> but I did it because it was that or eventual death and I was like okay living is good I was 16 so I I didn't give myself a choice I just barreled through but let's dive into some sexier stuff because we sure we did and we did all the like disability stuff let's dive into the sexier stuff so how does you having scoliosis affect your sex life this is something that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out because I think 18-year-old me was just like, it's not there, it's not really an issue. Um, But now that I've sort of had time to really understand myself as a sexual person, like that in and of itself took a long time. Understanding myself as desiring and capable of desire and actually being somebody who is sexually active extremely new to me as in like within the past like five years of really sort of embracing a part of me but in the actual sort of like physicality of it i realize how often i am in pain in that process like having sex inevitably involves some sort of pain be it you know soreness in general for my overall back but then you know for me as as a gay man um, bottoming can be incredibly painful, especially if I am in a position that's not comfortable. And because uh, of the way my spine arranges my uh, hips, it can be extremely painful to be in that position for long periods of time. So that's something I've had to learn from experience. So like the it's... whole the whole like gay gay male position of like I'm just gonna open my legs and you're gonna fuck me there and I'm, that's like yeah obviously that doesn't work for me and that obviously won't work for you either. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny to sort of think about how how porn in, in has made it so that that is the image you have in your head about what you should be able to do, and then I remember punishing myself in a lot of ways for not being able to do that. Like, I often felt like, well, I should be able to do that because everyone else seems to, uh, and in Los Angeles, you're also in this, you know, bizarre world of, you know, extremely attractive often white, muscular gay men in West Hollywood who, you know, live up in the ableism of like, oh, you're Asian, you must be a bottom. Uh, So there was all sorts of bizarre racial and gendered expectations about what you needed to be able to do, especially sexually. Um, And I I think I really struggled with that. I really did. Because I would often have sex that was either unpleasant or more about the other person than myself. And I realize now how destructive that was for my mental health, too. That is the story of my sex life, is having sex mm. that's unpleasant, or having, like, it's better now because I hire sex workers, and I'm the boss, so... Right. Like, thanks so much for coming, here's your money, do what I want, thank you, but, like... Yeah. So I'm the boss in those sessions, whatever I want goes, but for years, I had sex 
that sounds flippant. Not not whatever I want goes, but like whatever we decide together is the thing that happens. But for years, I would have sex where the able-bodied person won. Whatever they said we're gonna do, we're gonna do because they're able-bodied. Right. So I can't imagine being. I was in LA for one day last year yeah. for for a thing with Grinder that I did, and I left LA being like I love LA, but also I hate LA. Yeah. That's totally how I felt about it when I was I was 22 when I left. I was like, Jesus Christ! It was it felt so good when I was 18, but man, it is exhausting being here because it is so horribly ableist and so horribly white. Yeah. So how did you manage? How did you manage like the the very well known racism of the Asian community in queer communities, and then also like, guess what? I'm Asian queer and disabled like how did that go over so i have a bad answer and a good answer the bad answer is that i didn't deal with it which is something i i feel a great shame about because i thought at the time it was easier to essentially disavow my crip identity because one i really didn't know what that meant but also it was easier for me to deal with one form of oppression at a time the irony of course is the place i really sort of came out was a very uh now infamous gay bar in on West Hollywood called um, uh, Rage. But on Friday, it does a night called Game Boy. And it's essentially an Asian night. And it was the night where I, I felt like, oh, this is where I belong. I met a lot of friends there. It became a quote unquote queer Asian safe space for me. But it was so interesting that that space also reproduces a lot of the kinds of racism, especially within Asian communities. Themselves. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, when you said the name, I was like, that's it. and you were like it's a it was a queer safe space. My brain went really because it sounds yeah. really horrible. Exactly, exactly. But it felt it felt safe at first, right? Like an eighteen year old gay boy from the south who had really never seen this many Asians in the same room ever, and now queer Asian people all having fun in the same room. It felt it felt like paradise for a hot second until it didn't. Wow, like that. It, yeah, tell me more about how. Tell me more about how it didn't. I started realizing the people that I was meeting, either they were, you know, unabashedly fetishizing, like the assumptions that like, oh, you must be a bottom or like, oh, you're thin and skinny and, you know, you must like this or that or, you know, Asian, Asian-ness must equal femininity. It was really interesting to see that be reproduced and also the people who would go to that night, particularly for the sole purpose of hitting on gay Asian men um, and all the disgusting terms like rice queen or, you know, all of these, you know, horrible offhanded but colloquial ways of referring to racial preferences. Like it, it was always there. And I, I never, admittedly, this is yet again, something I'm ashamed of. It's like, I never called it out when I saw it. I never sort of challenged those moments when someone would approach me in that way. Um, but I, by the time I was getting to the end of my time in LA, I was deeply unhappy with it because I felt like I was never really meeting people who wanted to know me for me. I was always a type or something that filled a particular niche for that person. Um, and that was a shame. That really was a shame. It's, uh, like it, again, so many layers there of like mm-hmm. Asian-ness, queerness, disability. Mm-hmm. How, like how did, so when you were at those nights, did you try to like not be, did you decide, okay, I'm going to be Asian tonight, I'm not going to be Asian and disabled? In some ways, yes. Um, 
I was, if I was going to go to Game Boy, I was going to be the person that would be with all of my friends who were dancing on the, a dance floor until three in the morning, uh, until the night, the lights came on. And I didn't care about how much pain I was going to be in. I didn't care about the fact that I would be spending the next day recovering. I just saw it as the sort of cost of being in those spaces and being seen and seeing others. It felt like that was the cover I had to pay at the door. Fuck. That's, that's heavy. Like, cause, cause 35 year old, no, 23 year old Lander would agree with you. Yeah. 35 year old Lander was like, fuck that. I'm going home. Yeah. I'm getting on my Netflix. I'm going to jerk off into some Kleenex and cry about my night. And that'll be, that's it. There we go. <laughs> I mean, that is totally the life I live now. Like I am so okay now with refusing those expectations of like, I have to go out in order to have fun, um, have fun or to harm myself in order for a night to go well. And I, it, it, I wrote about this um, in, a, in an article recently about my experience of meeting um, a crip person for the first time at that nightclub. Uh, he happened to be in a wheelchair parked on the patio of this nightclub which is where everyone goes out to smoke. But I remember having a conversation with him and admittedly I, I felt like I approached him, you know, this is full disclosure, partially out of pity, partially out of, you know, concern because it seemed like he wasn't enjoying himself for now reasons that are super obvious. But I remember, you know, we, we were talking about this and I said, you know, like how, you know, how do you enjoy uh, nights like this? And he said, you know, it's amazing to, uh, realize that it's much easier to come out as queer than it does to come out as crip. And that, like, I didn't even understand the gravity of what that meant until now. And I realize now how much that resonates with my experience, but I was spending a lot of time trying to disavow that part of myself. It's a, it's a tough to come out as, as crip or cripple or whatever, whatever terminology we want to use to identify ourselves as disabled and all these intersections that are meant to love us. It's hard it's yeah. fucking challenging, and I, I only came out out of like, really, I'm still coming out as crippled and disabled every day when I do this work. Yes. Like it doesn't stop after. Mm. Just for me saying, hey, I'm disabled, it doesn't end. Every single day when I'm when I'm with a new person or when I'm with, when I'm by myself or when what I'm still coming out, so it doesn't change. And that fear of being both queer and disabled never goes away. It just lessens a little bit day by day. It never leaves you. It's always there. So I get that. And I also get how, like, because you were trying to pick one identity to be accepted, of course you were going to approach him with pity because if you approach him like a friend, it would make you look more disabled, which you were terrified of at the time. So it it makes sense. Right, right. And I, I, you know, I have to fully reconcile, well, not reconcile, I have to fully admit the fact that I, it, totally depended on my ability to pass. Like my scoliosis was able to be concealed enough for me to be among my other friends who were able-bodied. How did your scoliosis, like, what if you wanted to take a guy home? Uh, it would, I mean, in the rare times that it did end up that way, um, I would often have to sort of suppress it. It was okay enough that I could, but oftentimes, you know, I would, you know, find ways of explaining it away or like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, just been on my feet for a long time. Yeah, I'm going to be in a little bit of pain or whatever. Um, I find out, I find a lot of ways to sort of explain it away. <laughs> I can just see the, the guy looking at you being like, sure, you're going to be a lot of pain, but you're limping and you're like, okay, like, 
I can just see them trying to figure out how to, sure, okay, like, so, but when it came to, like, cases, let's say you were bottoming for somebody, uh -huh. you can't necessarily explain that away. How do you... I mean, I, I, this is where I, I think there's a part of me that started to shift where I became much more forthcoming about the things I wanted and what I wasn't willing to do. I, I said no more often and, you know, I would, I would just be frank about it. And often I'd just be like, yeah, I'm in a lot of pain or, you know, this is really going to be unpleasant. I would often frame it in ways of have it not be about them. I would actually take on the sort of burden of that and be like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't want to make it, you know, not worthwhile for you. And I did a lot of that sort of compensating, uh, but now I'm much more direct about it. And I found myself much more happy as a result. And uh, so now are you able to say to, to guys you want to spend time with, like, hey, I have scoliosis, so maybe that like spread ego thing you want to do and that like, mm -hmm. leg thing you want to do is not so not so hot let's find another hot position yeah or like inversions where it's like 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 summer head like those are things i'm like yeah like i make it very clear like i struggle with this all the time i'm often in a lot of pain for the most part it'll be fine but there are certain things i just cannot do and i hope you can you know understand and respect that most guys as i've discovered now have you know one, never had that conversation before, but I found more and more that people are actually far more compassionate once you sort of give them that first-person perspective as to why that is. Uh, that's something I never really thought of. I'm often, you know, trying to avoid moments of vulnerability, but only sort of in the past five or seven years, I've gone, I've sort of practiced that deliberate vulnerability with the people that I'm with, especially partners. So what is like, what does vulnerability look like for you in terms of uh, rather than just your scoliosis, like, how have you embraced... Because I talk about vulnerability a lot on this show and what it means for me. Yeah. So, like, what does it look like for you to be a vulnerable, queer, crip, Asian man? That is a really powerful question and one that I think I'm still learning every single day. Um, I used to think vulnerability meant sort of passivity or um, sort of taking a back seat to things, but... For me, vulnerability has been a form of agency, and I do this in my classrooms too, which is, you know, to sit and inhabit those difficult and ugly feelings. And oftentimes I will have my partners share, share in that experience um, and have a sit with the reality of how living with multiple marginalized identities really feels like. And I'm, I guess I've become kind of YOLO with it now. I just describe everything in detail uh and I, you know if it's if it's going to turn you off well at least i can leave this encounter knowing that i let put everything out on the table and i don't regret any of it um it's been it's been really empowering in ironically the most sort of scary and to use the word again vulnerable way i think vulnerability is hot so you can, yeah you can definitely uh you can definitely know that not only are you disabled and hot, you are vulnerable and hot. That should, that should be the next hashtag that we do. Oh, I am all about that. I sure. am so there. Let's figure it out. We'll do it together. Um, tell me, though, more about your polyamory and your open relationships, and how does how how does that all work out for you? How does, how does disability and scoliosis play into that? Oh, I mean, this, I think that aspect of my life is perhaps the newest. Um, I'm in a relationship with a, uh, a primary partner that has been about three years now. Um, and we are very different. Uh, we live very different lives. He 
um, he works in aviation and he's away very often. And I think something that we sort of came to terms with was this now to us extremely obvious fact that just because you enter into a relationship with somebody, you do not somehow lose your ability to desire others or you somehow um, lose the capacity for finding intimacies in other ways. Um, and I think the decision to be in an open relationship, one, took away the stigma of the fact that, you know, if either of us is away from one another, that we have to live double lives, which I think is, you know, a, a way, a, like pretty much a, a means by which uh, resentment and animosity can, can occur, but also it allowed both of us to sort of explore aspects of our identities in different ways. And for me, it was realizing that I, I do find form intimacy, sexual or not, with other people um, that I, in many ways, benefit from. And I've become sort of more confident as a result of these intimacies. Like I've gotten very close to people in ways that may or may not be sexual, but I wasn't allowed to pursue them, I think, at first, because I thought, well, if I'm in a monogamous relationship, those things cannot exist. And that that turned out to be entirely untrue. Polyamory is great. I'm polyamorous in my mind. I've never actually engaged those relationships because mm-hmm. men are trash. But <laughs> Amen. No. But, uh, but, but I, I am in my mind, and I, 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 if I could have a group of different partners, that's my dream of, like, people that love me just because I wasn't like that I think it's so powerful how do each of how did each of your partners handle the fact that you were disabled did you have a kind of a coming out discussion with each of them how did that go so I mean to be clear I don't I guess I'm not in a situation in which there are like multiple partners in a constellation that I am sort of pursuing in any sort of official capacity I guess it's like I allow relationships to emerge in whatever form they do and sometimes they may be fleeting uh, or they may be, uh, you know, oh, we're just really close friends, but nothing quite in the sort of like, oh, we are in a, you know, a three or four person. Yeah, like I, one, I don't actually think that's sustainable for me given the sort of, you know, uh, domestic life that I want to live. I think, I feel like it's a lot of, there's a lot more sort of logistical things that happen there that make that more theoretically uh, possible than it is practical. But, to answer your original question, I have worked really hard to be extremely forthcoming about that fact. Um, and that often means disclosing out the gate or even sort of, you know, in moments of intimacy, sort of sharing that. Like, one of the hardest things for me to do was to allow partners to touch my back in any sort of way, whether it be erotic or just even running their hands down my back. I was like, you can feel it, and they know it immediately. The thing that people usually see is if you ever, um, if you ever look at me straight on, one rib juts out more prominently than the other, and that's usually what people notice first. And they're like, oh, is something wrong? And I usually have to be like, oh, here's the time you have to have that conversation, uh, especially when they're going to think about it as wrong, right? Yeah. So yeah. that that has been, it's been really organic, but I have to sometimes be direct about it. Like, okay, well, the conversation has to happen now, better now than later, and that's usually what I have to do in my head. If you, just a sidebar, if you ever have the surgery, because I had the same thing when I had my scoliosis, like my mm-hmm. rib really jutted out, it looked kind of mm-hmm. terrifying. So if you ever need or opt for the surgery for yourself, and again, I back you in whatever decision you make, but if you do do that surgery, you will have a moment of like, oh, it's gone, and you will have a moment of like, that correction feels nice. And I remember when I woke up from the surgery at seven at 16, and looked down at my, at my rib, and didn't see it anymore, I was like, oh... This is what a normal, like, 
tummy is supposed to look like. Now I know that normal is all a contract and whatever, but at the time, it was like, oh, this feels okay. So if you, you know, if you have, you know, fears and discomforts around your rib thing, and if people say, oh, that looks wrong, and if you ever want to, if you ever want to go down that road, looking down at your body after that surgery, you'll be like, oh, it looks okay now. Yeah, and I mean, like, I, this raises all sorts of questions for me that I hope that we can talk about, you know, in the future about the, you know, we talk a lot in disability communities about hating on cure or fetishizing cure is somehow going to make everything okay, but cure can be pleasurable. In yeah. fact, you know, cure can be something that can make lives better. Whether or not that is totalizing is another question, but you can value cure for how it can be pleasurable, but also be critical of it. Yeah, exactly. I think... I think that if, honestly, and if somebody said to me tomorrow, Andrew, we have a pill that you can take, then we'll mean you can walk tomorrow. Uh, you know, I would probably take the pill. I would. Sure. Because I, sure. Because, and it doesn't mean that I would not be proud of my disabled identity for the time I had it, or whatever it was. It means that I would want to see what the other side had. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I, I'm somehow, sometimes very troubled by when disability activists will condemn fellow disabled people for, in some ways, desiring cure or taking steps to ameliorate their disabled conditions as if they were somehow a traitor to the cause. And I, I think that's just such a limited view of what disability is that I think does a disservice to people who actually are suffering. Like you would not want to um, enable suffering for other disabled people. Why would you not sort of validate their decisions for bettering their lives, if even in ways that might be pleasurable. Yeah, and it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work for you, it's what they want, so let them... Yeah. Why are we fighting that? If somebody with severe scoliosis said, I want my back fixed, it's going to make me not hurt a lot. Great! Like, mm -hmm. And, you know, if that if that is your journey in, in a couple of years, no one should stand in your way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can already see the kinds of people that would be like, that's your internalized ableism speaking, you desiring to return to a place where you could feel in some ways whole you and complete. You never and had like, that place, though. So right. this whole idea of returning to where, you've, you had scoliosis from the time you were young. Yeah. So you didn't, you're not returning, you're embarking on a whole new chapter. And it, we could go on about that forever, but let's... <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but I want to move into um, your kind of academic stuff. Because mm. I'm, I'm a nerdy academic person. I love academia so much that mm -hmm. it's like, if I had the drive to go into academic ableism stuff, I would totally do it, but I just don't care anymore. So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to do that anymore. But I love what you do. And I love that you teach and write about disability studies. How does that manifest itself for you as a disabled professor? This is, that aspect of my life has been... I think by far the most transformative in terms of pursuing this profession. I, I think when I started teaching, it really dawned on me what the stakes are of what we do in disability studies. There's been an ongoing set of critiques, especially by marginalized scholars in disability studies, to describe the fact that disability studies or disability theory is completely detached from the actual lived experiences of people on the ground. Yep. And for me, when I started teaching, I think in some ways I did kind of confine it all to the level of theoretical. But the moment that I started disclosing in class or talking about 
just the struggle, for instance, of me engaging with my students in class with my fog and with my pain, it totally changed my view of what disability studies is meant to do and what we do with that knowledge. Um, it became a way of teaching for me, of teaching from a place of disability rather than talking about it as this sort of floating concept that we are trying to like capture in academic thinking. It's totally lived and something that you know you can be forthcoming about with your students and the students fucking get it. They have never had faculty ever. Um, at least the students that I've spoken to, they, they're like, we've never had a, a professor who came out to us as crip in any way. It would often be everything else, but never like, hey, I'm in a lot of pain today. Our, our lecture is going to be slightly more difficult and I'm going to need your help. That sort of vulnerability, as we've talked about with sexuality, like I've been bringing that into the classroom and it's totally changed everything that I've done. That's incredible. Like that, and to, and to be honest, in all my years of going to college and doing a BA and then an MA, I never had a prof do that, never once did a prof yeah. stop and say, hey, I'm not feeling so great today because of my chronic illness or my disability. Mm-hmm. I, we have to cut the lecture or not. Like, I never, and I think, especially because you're teaching disability studies, like, yeah. there, there's a, that, that's really powerful. And it felt, it felt like a responsibility because I think I could have done what 18-year-old Travis did in gay clubs in West Hollywood, which is to immediately disavow it and say like, well, I'm here to do a job as an academic and as an academic who is capable and here and prepared, I could just not talk about it. But that exactly, as you mentioned, it's a class about this. How, what right do I have to be so hypocritical as to disavow the fact that I live this identity? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you do have the right to just to like hide it if you chose to do that. Nobody, sure. would, nobody would tell you otherwise. But the fact that you had the balls to like put it out there for your students is really just that. Like, if I could give you a standing ovation, slow clap right now, that's what would be happening. Because it's just it's so awesome because the students need that, and it will gird what they're doing and anchor what they're doing so much more in reality. So when they write you papers about stuff, or when they write do assignments for you they know that you're coming at this material from a lived experience place. Yes, and I want those students to feel like they are in a safe environment where they can also write from the positions of their own disability or body minds that may or may not be normative. I, it, it's so, it hurts me sometimes to hear students go, oh, I, I, I for instance, am somebody who is on the spectrum and I feel like because my thinking isn't linear and clear, my professors don't take what I say seriously. Like for, for them to really do scholarship from that perspective, that to me is super radical, especially because academia is all about creating this illusion of a third person um, authority figure. The reasonable detached. person that like, knows everything. Exactly, and it's it's a performance among all things, and that's that's really what's been pushing my sort of activism in the academy, which is academia is an ableist as fuck place that doesn't have space for disabled scholars, point blank, and no. to to disclose, to insist upon it, like the fact that when I was applying for jobs, people questioned my decision to disclose my disability because it would make it would frame me as a liability to the institution is so telling about the ways in which academia functions based on things like hyperproductivity, about always thinking on your feet, about always being present and energetic. Disability is just not, I mean, in a lot of ways, disability is the unthinkable of academia. And that's what um, Mel Chen said in, in her article about brain fog, because she had struggles with brain fog. And she said it 
with just such uh, sort of clarity that you are trained to think a very particular way in academia. And if you cannot think that way, you are not fit for it. And that's, that's a real shame. And if you dare to challenge the institution by thinking another way or calling out their ableism, they will deny you. You are, you yes. are turned away. You are told you are wrong. That's why I left. I, did my, I finished my MA, and everybody said to me, Andrew, do a PhD. Everybody said to me, Andrew, your ideas around disability are great. Do a PhD. And I said, if I do this PhD, is everybody going to read what I write? And they went, mm-hmm. well, probably not. And I was like, well, fuck that then. I can get mm-hmm. on the computer and I can contact HuffPo tomorrow. And I watch. I'll, I said, watch, I'll do what I'm going to I'll do exactly what that, but I'll do it in the public sphere and I'll make waves. And I did. And so it's so disconcerting that there are probably so many students and professors who have these great ideas around disability that they're optioning to medical textbooks or like university textbooks that no one's going to read or they're going to read the chapter and do the assignment and then we're done but there's there's no chance for any of those ideas to actually flourish outside of academia yes and i mean like you've been in in many ways an inspiration to me because you have very actively um, circulated those ideas and brought some of the, the best aspects of people thinking about sexuality and disability together in accessible ways to a public that will gain much more from it than, say, an edited monograph that barely anyone will get access to, especially people who may or may not be trained to read academic texts. Yeah, and that's and thank you for what you said. I really appreciate that because I look up to you too. So we could, we could like jerk off each other's emotions all day, but let's not do that. Let's not do that. Um, but thank you. I appreciate that. But no, I really try to, you know, I I would love to bring all the stuff I talk about into PhD programs. And what I love about what I do in this podcast, particularly, is people will listen to this and be like, hey, I'm writing a paper on sex and disability and I found your podcast. Can I use an excerpt? And that, like, makes my heart sore because, of course, I say yes. But then I know that I'm so distanced from the academy that I have no... I have no liability for them. I can say what I want and they can use the quote as they want to. And yes. I, I'm safe from like, oh no, it's so scary what you said. I'm just the guy out there saying it. Yeah. And that's the liberating part about, in many ways, being able to be a public intellectual. And that's, that's a term now that I think gets thrown around in terms of, you know, people, you know, wanting to have the cachet of the academy but at the same time want their ideas to circulate like that's something that i've been thinking about too which is that you know the academy is a is a in many ways broken place um i for instance with with full disclosure my job here is only through 2020 and i may not have a job that follows and i had i said to myself what am i going to do after that if the academy does not have a place for me i'm going to have to reinvent myself in many ways and i and i think you know, in talking to people like you, I think there's extremely bright futures for people who have been in the academy but want to do other work, especially work that actually touches people's lives. And that sometimes takes some imagination. And often it takes the courage to be like, I'm going to make a podcast. I'm going to I'm going to fucking talk about things that are difficult and in ways that are actually going to matter to people. Here we go. Let's see what happens. I mean, if if fingers crossed that it, the contract goes through, but if it doesn't. And you want to do creative stuff, and even if it does, if you still want to do creative stuff, we need more disabled queer queer podcasters out there, especially those of us with different racializations than, say, white people. So yeah. let me know if you want help producing a thing. I'm around. 
Yeah, I mean, these are things I'm absolutely thinking about. And in many ways, like, it's hard for me to admit this, but because I've spent so much of my life sort of living this linear plan of, like, you know, perpetuating a career and, like, reaching for the next thing, which, you know, my parents spent a lot of time trying to train in me, it hasn't allowed me to do the sort of creative risk-taking that I'm doing now in my poetry, for instance, which is totally detached from my academic work. Uh, the poetry, that's, I want to get there because... I read some of your stuff. I love yeah. all the things you're doing. It. I'm. I'm gonna get your book, cause I just. Thank you. Cause I. Well, first of all, I want to support disabled creators, and you are one of my favorites. And I just. So tell me, tell tell the audience and me how disability, like, plays into your poetry. Like, let's go there. I think. So when I was in college, I turned to poetry as. Uh, an outlet from the sort of demands of academic life where I was constantly having to think theoretically. So I saw those things as very separate. Um, I thought about queerness, about sexuality a lot in those in those early years, especially uh, as I was reading a lot of um, queer poets, especially HIV AIDS poets. I'm, uh, I'm deeply, deeply um, indebted to writers like Paul Manette, uh, and Tom Gunn, who wrote these extremely moving lyrical poems about living with and caring for people with um, HIV/AIDS, uh, and I thought about how much po- how much poetry allows for you to deal with the complexities of feeling, um, especially queer feeling, and things that are otherwise inexpressible uh, in our day to day life. And I I saw I kept seeing them as separate. And then I got to graduate school, still was separate. I think I was too busy trying to figure out what my quote-unquote professional self would look like, that I didn't give much time to poetry. Then I got toward the end of my graduate school career, and I was like, this is a whole part of my life that I've just essentially thrown to the wayside. But then a few of my colleagues were like, do you understand, Travis, how important it is to think about those two practices as interdependent, right? Like, your creative work allows you to answer and ask questions that your academic work can't and vice versa. And what would it mean to think about them as both trying to address questions you've been interested in, but in different ways and in different forms. And I mean, I tell that story to people, people are like, "Uh, yeah, isn't that fairly obvious? I had not really sat down and asked myself, okay, well, what does that actually look like? How can I bring disability theory, for instance, into poetry or think about the poetic in disability scholarship? And I've begun to experiment with that. And it's, it's been terrifying because sometimes you realize that both areas want you to do things in what they think of as normative or legible forms, yeah. but it takes some experimentation. And I've, I'm so thankful that it has been received well by, uh, by readers. And I'm by I'm the last person to to describe myself as a published poet, even though technically I am. It's a very new aspect of my identity that I still feel a little weird identifying as. Well, then that's what I'm gonna have to say throughout the whole intro just to make you blush and to make sure you know it's real because it is real and I, and I just I will champion what you're doing all the time because I love it I think it's great and um, thank you. I just really think what and thank you so much for sharing all these stories and for being so vulnerable today because I, you know as your first as your first podcast I, I'm honored that you would be so open that's great yeah I mean I think about you know, we can have these conversations over and over again, and I can sort of tell you, you know, what I think you would want to hear or what 
I think viewers would want to hear, but actually what people want to hear is exactly the sort of heartfelt stories that actually come from somewhere real. Um, so sometimes I, I try to suspend those, you know, fears that I'm going to say something that people are not going to want to hear. Um, I'd rather tell a story that is real to me, as real as real can be, I guess. Yeah, and I, what I love, and thank you for that, what I love about this show and, and my ability to bring people like you on the show is that, and the more and more I do it, I'm learning that it doesn't have to be just a disability and sex podcast. It can yeah. be a disability and or sex podcast. Like, it doesn't have to be one or the other, or, you know, it doesn't have to have all the things. It can be It can be whatever we want it to be in the moment, so I love doing that. I love that we were able to share this time together today. Um, one last thing about sure. sex that I want to ask you about, because uh-huh. I want to ask you, so, if you, so as somebody with scoliosis who has trouble with the sex thing sometimes because of pain, do you have any mm-hmm. tips for, say, bottoms out there with back stuff? Or like- so, it's, so I have two responses to that. One, I think as a result of bottoming being so difficult, I realize more and more that I am more the top, which is weird to admit because, of course, of all the sort of dominant stereotypes that uh, tend to attach to queer Asian men, uh, that took a long time to sort of like overcome in the sense that like, oh yeah, okay, I enjoy topping and I like being in that position of activity i'll put it that way um and also power yes yes and i mean as somebody who has struggled with confidence and self-esteem like to be in a position of power at all especially in in a vulnerable one in which you are engaging with somebody in an intimate way yeah that is extremely sort of difficult but also liberating act yes exactly but sort of like but i mean practical tips wise i think for me it's about time um i think I think when I when I was figuring out how to have sex, I was really sort of rushed about it. Like I did it exactly how I would, you know, uh, jack off on my own. It'd be like, you know, hey, let's just get this done. Um, like, come and be a with it. But it the the most satisfying sex and the most sort of sustainable sex for me has been ones that taken time. Um, and often that doesn't necessarily mean rushing to orgasm or even orgasming at all, but like, you know, really sort of enjoying that moment and respecting the fact that, well, my body's going to be like, fuck you. I'm not going to deal with this right now. And it might have to end there. Yeah. That's a tough thing to reconcile. And so I'm learning more and more to not worry about if I come or not, if I'm by myself or with somebody and I'm just enjoying the moment, like that's great. But that's, there is a lot of shame around that. There is a lot. Of, and I was the same way as you. It was like, why? I have to come, I have to get out, I have to leave, and it needs mm-hmm. to be done. But now it's like, no, I'm going to spend my time, I'm going to see how this feels, and so, yeah. So your advice to, like, to back pain bottoms, that you totally mm-hmm. get on, is to, totally. is to, like, take your time and, and just chill out? Yeah, I mean, or to put it perhaps more theoretically, like, think about everything around the act of orgasm, or ejaculation that might be pleasurable that you don't pay attention to because you're rushing to get to an end point. Totally. And I can think of like five things that I don't think about when I'm trying to come. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, what I love about this conversation the most right now 
is how we're talking about cum, and you're doing it in such a <laughs> you're doing it with such a professorial thing. It's yeah, like, it's super adorable right now. I got I have to tell you, it's my favorite. But this is, I mean, it's so telling about like me still trying to be like confident and forthcoming about these things. Yeah, like I still, in some ways, feel a little bit bashful talking about it. But hey, you're right. We are talking about something like cum. Surprise. Well, I really hope you play this episode for your students because it's, oh it's, god, it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> please do it, please, please for me. Uh, but and one one final thing that I had about when we were talking. So you've seen, you've heard about Ryan O'Connell's special, right? You've heard, yes. seen that or heard about it. Uh-huh. So what I think, given the story you told at the beginning about how you would go to this this gay Asian theme night in West Hollywood, there needs to be a show about you in Hollywood trying to navigate the queerness and the disability part. Like, I would watch that. Where's that? I mean, if there were such a thing, like, to think about how intersexual that would be, about how... That is a story that is... I. I cannot even think of a single example that gets close to it. Though this new Netflix show, I think, is really breaking new ground about thinking about disability as sexual or sexuality as disabled in, at all. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited for it. Like this is the beginning of something really compelling. And yeah, I would I, I would love to see that that show. So what I'm saying is, Jim Parsons, uh, I know you <laughs> produced Ryan's show. If you're listening, I'll find a way to get this to you. Let's produce another show. Please, somebody, I want to see the show. Anyway, um, Travis, you're amazing. I love all the things you do. Thank you so much for coming on today. How can everybody get a hold of you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter primarily, at Travis C. Lau. I also use Instagram. Um, but yeah, those are the main ways. I also have my homepage, Um I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Uh, hit up my DMs or my email. I am all about it. How do the people buy your book? Oh, yes. So um, my book is called The Bone Setter, uh, which came out with a small independent press called Damaged Goods Press, uh, run by uh, great queer and trans uh, supporting folks. Um, they are a very small production, so they absolutely need the support and um, the, the income. So definitely consider purchasing uh, the group of chat books that gets published together. So my my book is a short chaplet of six poems, and it is published alongside other queer, trans, and disabled uh, writers, and they're all in one bundle. And you can go and order it there on the website. Amazing. And one more time, the website is? Uh, it should be uh, damagegoodspress.com. I could be wrong, though. I'm going to double-check really quick, just so I don't misspeak. Awesome. Um, That's cool. I'm not going to edit this. Yes, yeah, it so. is. It's damagegoodspress.com. I will put all the links in the show notes. Travis C. Lau, this was such an enlightening and fun conversation. I want to have you back at some point because it was great. I really enjoyed this. Yes, I am so thankful that this was my first experience. And it's it's kind of surreal to have this be my first experience, especially with someone like you who is just doing great work every single day. So I really appreciate it. I'm so happy that I popped your podcast, Cherry. Uh, I, I mean, it was truly popped. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So, so amazing. All right, I'm going to talk to you off the air, but uh, thank you for coming on today, and we'll talk soon. Yep, see you then. Bye. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark. 
the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking, where I've been doing talks, and if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at TheAndrewGerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DisabilityAfterDark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that, and I, I will give you a shout-out on the air, and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show, all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations, with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019